through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm going to read the New City Catechism, question number four. Answer the question with me. How and why did God create us? God created us, male and female, in his own image, to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Keely. you're here this morning, each and every one of you. We've read this scripture a few times this morning about being made in God's image. We've been made male and female. We'll look at that and kind of connect how that relates to marriage and how that reflects the glory of God. We'll look at that we're made in God's image and how that reflects in us the glory of God and just in conclusion we will see that all that we are is made to glorify God and look at what some ideas about how that will be so the first part of the scripture says that in answering how did God make us he said he made us male and female and I was questioning how this testifies to the Son, Jesus Christ, the greatest and the greatest event of all history, the cross. Like when we look at that we're made this way, how can we point that to what the Bible is all about, which is all about testifying. The Spirit testifies all throughout all of Scripture about Jesus. The Bible is the Holy Spirit making much of Jesus, making him famous in every story. So if he's there at creation and everything's being made through, uh, from the Father through Jesus and the Holy Spirit's carrying it out. We looked at this a little bit last week and looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. And if that is all happening and it comes to this climatic event of making humans on the earth, and that all of that will reflect the glory of God. What is the meaning of that? As we look at some following scriptures, we see in Genesis 2, 7, some more of how we were made. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So we see God like a sculptor with his hands in the dirt and mud creating man and forming him. Our God works. There's a lot of other gods that don't. They see work as a bad thing, but 
our God and the God of the Bible works and he forms, he creates, and he forms man from the dust of the earth and the life that comes into him comes from God himself. He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and that's what ma makes man a living being, a living creature. We see later that in Genesis 2, 21 through 22, it says the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So we see God forming male and female in his own image. And this points to what happens right after that in Genesis 2, 23 through 25, when God presents woman to man. The man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called womb man because she was taken out of man, out of the womb of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we see all this happening before the fall. Uh, work being established. Work is a good thing. It's not a result of sin. We see that marriage is a good thing. It is not the result of some need after sin came. It's an establishment to reflect the glory of God. So the work that you do is to reflect the glory of God. And if God has chosen for you to enter into marriage, this marriage reflects something glorious about God. And this is revealed throughout Scripture. This Scripture that a man should not leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, uh, becomes repeated throughout the Bible. And to leap clear into Paul's instructions in Ephesians, what Paul instructs that marriage is about in Ephesians 5, 31, he quotes this verse. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he's talking about this original creation being made male and female, then coming together in marriage. And here's what he says about it in verse 32 of Ephesians 5. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, marriage is attacked because what of marriage reflects, and it reflects the glory of God in marriage. And so when you're reading through this, when you hear husbands love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church. See, it's all about how Christ loves the church and how Christ gave himself up for the church, what Paul's instructing all through here is about Christ's love for his bride and about his marriage to his bride. All through here, what does Christ do? He sanctifies her. He's cleansing her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is all about Christ's love for his church and what he will do for his church. So when we look at that, we're made in the image of God. and We're made male and female. 
when we come together as male and female in the holy covenant of marriage, we're reflecting something much greater than just our own marriage. We're reflecting the glory of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And so this is something glorious. The love that God has in his son, Jesus, for his body, the church, is miraculous. So when Jesus goes all the way to do what it said there in Ephesians 5, to create a bride for himself that is holy and without blemish, without spot and wrinkle, to sanctify her, what does that take? takes the giving up of himself upon the cross. See, how we're created in the image of God points to Jesus. The Spirit is testifying in creation that we're made male and female. He's testifying to the glory of Jesus. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, and as he fell to his death in sleep, this second Adam Something came from his side. Out of the womb of the side of Jesus was thrust a spear right up in between his ribs. And out of his side flowed blood and water. And that blood and water cleanses his bride. And it is the only thing that cleanses his bride. And that is the glory of God. It is the glory of God and his son Jesus Christ. And that is why he made us male and female, to be pledged to him. If you're single, you're pledged to Christ. You are that part of that bride. If you're married, you're part of that bride in Christ by faith. All to the glory of God. Married, single, Paul was single himself, sold out to the Lord. He said, if you enter into marriage, it'll only divide your affections to God. Live holy to God as his bride, single. There's nothing wrong with singleness. Live holy to the Lord because the greater glory is the glory of your relationship with Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. But if you are married, let that marriage reflect the glory of God. If you're single, let your singleness reflect your devotion to Christ. Amen? So we're created male and female in his image to reflect, whether single or whether marriage, the glory of God. That's our life's purpose, our life's goal. Our life's end is to glorify God. So he created us not only male and female, but he created us male and female in his image. Now, when we look at image and we look at the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, there's this great story. I talked about it some Wednesday um, at our service on Wednesday nights about who is Jesus. Jesus was an amazing teacher. When he taught, he astonished people. Uh, when he said things, their jaws dropped and they marveled because people could see the entrapment coming. And in this story in Matthew 22, 15 through 22, it's one of their best entrapment come up to's with the Pharisees. They had him pinned. They had him pinned on a political issue. Uh, it was going to be a huge political divide no matter how he answered, and they were going to diminish Jesus and put him where he belongs. It's no account as a teacher. No matter how he answered, 
And the question, this political question was this, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus was aware of their malice. He says, show me the coin. They brought a denarius. Jesus said to them, now, now think of this, what we're talking about, made in the image of God on this point. He says, whose likeness, whose image, whose inscription is this? Holding up a coin. And they say it's Caesar's. Caesar's image is imprinted on that coin. And Jesus, with one answer, in one sentence, says this, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now in that first part, he's saying, see his, his image, his likeness, inscription on it? Tells you to pay taxes? Pay taxes. It's his coin, his image. Give him his image. Give him his coin. Give him his due. It's his. It has his image on it. But he says something very profound after that. This is what made them marvel. Render unto God the things that are God's. And Genesis 1, 26 and 27 explodes in this biblically literate crowd of Jewish believers who know the law, who know the word. He's saying, see that image, see that likeness, and the question arouses in them without even having to be explained or answered, whose image is on you? Who owns you? Who owns all of you? Whose likeness are you made in? Whose image is imprinted on you? And it's God's. And you owe him more than a coin. You, know, you owe him your all that he's imprinted on your very soul at the core of your being. And this is what exploded and caused their jaws to drop. It says they marveled at his teaching. He wasn't entrapped by their, if I say, pay the taxes, that the crowd's going to hate him. If he says don't pay the taxes, he's going to be arrested by Rome for insurrection, public insurrection, thrown in jail. Either way, he's going to be diminished as a teacher. But instead, they marvel at his teaching. He teaches something much deeper he takes a, an opportunity where they're plotting for his demise to teach them the very core of what it means to glorify God. That his image, you're his image bearers. Go out and bear his image. You're made in his likeness. This was profound. This one simple answer undermined the Pharisees' teaching that said, uh, if you pay your taxes to Caesar, you dishonor God. Jesus is saying, no, no, you don't. Give Caesar what's his. He also turned a politically charged question into a teaching about something far more important and weightier than whether you pay your taxes or not. But it's how and why are you created? And that's our question today. We are created male and female in the image of God to glorify God. And Jesus makes that clear. Tiffany gave a quote of R.C. Sproul earlier, and uh, here's another one by him. He says, we do not segment our lives, giving some time to God, some to our business, some to schooling, 
maybe keeping a little part of it for ourselves. The idea is to live all of our lives in the presence of God, under the authority of God, for the honor and glory of God. That is what the Christian life is all about. Yeah. You belong body, soul, heart, soul, mind to God. Remember that was our first question of the year. We are all his. His image is upon us. We are his image bearers. We're going through the New City Catechism, but in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this really is the first question that they start with. They see this as the most important question to begin with. And that question is, what is the chief end of man? What is your purpose in life? What is the chief end? It says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's your purpose, to glorify God in all that you do. And I love this next part, to enjoy him forever. Think about enjoying God forever. I mean, like, if we're Christians going out to glorify God, and we go to say something good, like since we're talking about marriage, say I bring something great, a great, you know, a, a good gift to, to my wife, and she goes, Oh my gosh, Bobby, why'd you bring this to me? And I say, because it was my duty. I'm your husband. It's my duty to glorify you, and to bring you glory, to bring you gifts. He's not like, oh, wow. If I say, because I love you, because I honor you, because in this life together, you're my greatest treasure outside of God, he feels a little different. You see, our lives are about that. Our lives, our chief end is not just to glorify God, but in glorifying God, we enjoy him. And this brings out another uh, pastor, a, a great quote by John Piper. This is kind of the thrust of his whole ministry. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Think about that. Our, our, right now we're talking about glorifying God. And how do we do that? And he's saying we most glorify God when we are most satisfied in him. When he is our greatest treasure. When we go out and we don't just say, ah, these, these commandments are, are burdensome. I'm tired of living with his instructions and law rather than seeing the glory of his law and his instructions, they've just become burdensome. But if we say, thank you, God, for your instruction, your law is sweeter than honey. I love that what you have given me to live by and abide by and keeping me in your paths of life for your name's sake. Thank you, Lord. See, this is a different approach to glorifying God. We can't glorify God if we're not enjoying God and his ways. Jesus told another parable in Matthew 20 about laborers in the vineyard. You see, some went early and started working, and some didn't get offered a job until the last hour of the day. And so when the last hour of the day people got paid first, Jesus telling this, this parable, these laborers in the vineyard, when they got paid this same amount that was promised to everyone, 
they began to think they were going to get more because they started earlier. Jesus specifically is doing that on purpose, paying the ones that only worked an hour first, because as these others come up, it says when they received theirs, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Would you agree with me for one denarius? What belongs to um, I choose if I choose to give the last worker as I give to you, am I not allowed to do that? To choose what, with what belongs to me? Or are you begrudging my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. The point of these laborers in the vineyard is rather than it being a joy to work for the master of the vineyard, they saw it as a working with God in his field, they saw it as something burdensome. His commandments had become burdensome. His labor had become burdensome. How do we, do, how do we see working in God's vineyard a privilege, a joy? Are we enjoying our life? Because only that reflects the glory of God. Begrudging and grumbling and wanting more than the next person is not going to glorify God. And working in his field is not going to glorify him if all we do is complain about how hot it is and how hard it is and complain and grumble all the time. That doesn't reflect the glory of God. And Jesus is bringing this out in a convicting way to those that are there and saying that those that are brought in last and enjoy all the privileges and inheritance of the kingdom are every bit as valuable as those that have been getting to work in God's field all along. It's amazing how we carry this image uh, with us today. We're like, oh, that guy lived up a sinful life. He went out with this and that and all kinds of, you know, and partying and lived it up and women. And, and then in the last, he said, Lord, he beat his breast and he repented and he found Jesus. And, oh, he got to live it up the whole life. And then at the very end, he got in. I wish I was like that. I wish I got to live it up this whole time and then at the last minute sneak in because we don't understand we're we're begrudging getting to live in the glory of God all of our lives from our youth if we were called from our youth we have got to enjoy the covenant love of God and the escape of this world and the poison and entanglements of sin to a larger degree than those that are just brought in at the very last how do you see your life with God? Are you living to glorify him and are you enjoying him? Because in enjoying him, you display his glory. And this is what Jesus did. This is what the psalmists write about. Think about this Psalm 8410. For better is one day, think of this, in your courts elsewhere. Is that what living with God is like? That's what the psalmist says. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Think of that. Think of the person that comes out here and opens the door. Come on in. Welcome. Come on in. Welcome. I'd rather do that one day than have a thousand days of pleasure with the tents, those in the tents of the wicked. One day of just doing that's better than a thousand elsewhere. 
the psalmist used. He enjoys God. He loves God. The image of God is stamped on him, and he knows he's created in the image of God to give glory to God and to enjoy God. And he said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. I'd rather enjoy one day with God than a thousand somewhere else. Is this how we see our lives enjoying God and glorifying God? I challenge you, let us enjoy God because he is the source of life. His image is on us and we live our very best when we live to his glory and we enjoy him. We have joy in him. And we say other things like this in the Psalms. 16.2, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Psalm 16.5, the Lord is my chosen portion. He is my cup. Psalm 16.6 goes on. I have a beautiful inheritance. Where's my inheritance? My inheritance is him. I have a beautiful inheritance. And I have a beautiful inheritance to give my kids and my grandkids. And it's that they know the Lord, that he is their portion, that he is their cup, that he is their glory, and that the image of God is stamped upon them. This is what I have to give my children and grandchildren, and on and on. What does Psalm 16 go on to say? Besides, I have a beautiful inheritance. My whole being rejoices. My whole being rejoices in you, God. My whole being. And then what does it say? Because in your presence, Psalm 1611, is fullness of joy. You want real joy? It's only found in God, not in temporary pleasures of this world. Real, deep, satisfying, soul-satisfying joy is found in God alone. And the psalmist has found it. And he says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand is pleasures forevermore. Wow. Anybody offer you that? Maybe some temporary pleasures. That's what Satan offered Jesus. I'll give you some temporary pleasures. And Jesus seemed to be the only one to say, Forget you, devil. Every, all of the rest of us just go fall and stumble and go, I'll take the temporary pleasure. And there was only one man that resisted the temporary pleasure. There was only one man who said, the pleasures are in God alone. And I will not yield to any other subpar pleasure. My pleasures are in God. His image is on me. We are one. And I will not divide that oneness. And he kept that oneness pure all the way to the cross for you. To stamp his image upon you once again and to bring you into his presence once again, once again and to teach you that there are pleasures, there is fullness of joy in God and there are pleasures at his right hand forevermore, not just temporary ones here and there, but joy forevermore. Teach a teenager that. Whew. That's hard to do. That's what we got in our house right now. Second round and I'm failing all over again. Whew, it's hard. Psalm 48, I delight to you your will, O God. Do you hear that? Your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will. I delight to do your will. I enjoy you. I most glorify you when I most enjoy you. And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. My food! You guys don't understand. I got food to eat here. Did somebody sneak in some food? they said the disciples someone sneak some food back before we got back here no my food to do the will of my father feeds me it nurses me it brings me joy Whew. jesus had a hold of something didn't he his work was to glorify god your work i want to tell you this 
Your work glorifies God, how you do your work. Remember what R.C. Sproul said? It's not, oh, I give this right now to God, and then, well, I do this work over here, and then I go do this over here, and then I keep a little time for myself. All of it, all of it, all of it is about God's glory. So your work, Genesis 1, created you to subdue and work in this earth, to cultivate it, to work in it. He established work before the fall, and work is to the glory of God. Do all your work heartily with all your heart unto the Lord to glorify him, to glorify him. We're workers. Christians are the best workers, and they work not for their own glory, and they don't work for money, and they don't work for pay. They work to glorify God, and that's why they reflect God's image in their work. Adriana's going to be successful in her work. (laughs) She's successful in her school. She's successful in her college, and she's going to continue to reflect the glory of God and be successful in her work. Amen? Amen. Be blessed. So Jesus was able to stick with this work. It's kind of nice there in in John 4, 34, where Jesus says that. But what about later, when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, the olive press? The olive press garden, pressed, where blood comes out. I've never been pressed that hard. Feel like I've been pressed hard, not pressed like that. He was bearing the pressure of bearing the weight of the sin upon his shoulders and bearing, going to the cross and being forsaken by God. My God, my God, for me to cry out on that cross, why have thou forsaken me? He knew what was coming and he said, is there any other way to let them know they're Imago Dei, they're the image of God, they are your people. Is there any other way? Let this cup pass from me. There is no other way. Is there any other way? There is no other way. Is there any other way? Three times, man, Jesus. There is no other way. Obey me about the tree. Don't disobey me like Adam did about the tree. Obey me about the tree. Go to the tree. Go to the cross. Be a curse for them that we can redeem them into our love. And bring our image to them once again. And let them know they're image bearers. Let them know they're made for us and for our glory, for the glory of God. They are made male and female in our image to glorify. Let them know. Go to the cross. And he says, not my will, but your will. Oh, yeah. Come on. That's got to be one of the greatest verses ever. Your will be done. That's submitting even when it's hard. You know why? Because he enjoyed God. Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, the joy set before him endured the cross. He saw something in going to the cross. He saw joy. He saw redemptive power. What do you see when you're suffering? What are you seeing when you're going through hard times? You've got to have a hope laid out there in God and what he's doing in your life, even through the hard times. And you all are going through hard times, and we'll go through harder times. No one wants to hear that. Be quiet, Bobby. Say that quieter. That's the way my life's gone. Gotten older, gotten harder. Gotten older, gotten harder. Tested, tried by fire, wondering, doubting, struggling, clawing, holding on. Enjoy me. Enjoy me. 
joy in you will cause you to overcome. Hold on to the joy of the Lord. Come on, Nehemiah fans. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. Keep working. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. We will overcome and be victorious in Jesus who went to the cross for us. He's the founder of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I will endure what I'm going through. Is God our greatest treasure? Is God our greatest joy? Is it our greatest desire to do his will? This is what Christians are being called to. This joy in God, this delight in God. Well, how do we glorify God? We glorify him by enjoying him. We glorify him in our mar marriages. We glorify him in our work. We glorify him in all that we do, even through our suffering. We glorify God when we are most satisfied in him. And we tell him he is our only satisfaction. think we're going to sing as our closing song, Great Are You, Lord, unless we change it. You give life to our love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. It's your breath. It's your breath. You gave us everything. You marked us for you, God. You, we are Imago Dei. We're made in your image. We're made in the image of God. We are made. And even our breath, come on. I didn't even talk about giving your breath to the glory of God, but you're going to sing about it right now. That he gave you breath. Paul said this in Acts chapter 17, in him quoting a Greek poet, in him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move and have our breath. That's the God we want to glorify with our very being, all of our being, even the breath that's in our lung. Come on, church, let's praise the Lord. Amen. And that's how we glorify God, by praising him, and even praising him that our very breath is from him. As the worship team comes, we remember the Lord and what Jesus instituted to do in remembrance of him until he came again. He said, do this in remembrance of me until I come again. So we do. And the bottom is you're here and you're a believer in Jesus, that's the qualification. You're welcome to take communion with us. Open up the bottom. Represents the bread, the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and gave thanks to God for it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Lord, we partake together and remember your body. And in like manner, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given for you for the remission of sins. We do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the fruit of the vine and remember the blood given for us in Jesus.
let us glorify God from your lips by giving thanksgiving to his name. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord.